This episode is brought to you by the Elite Academy, formerly known as hrvcourse.com. The Elite Academy now offers in-depth online courses on multiple subjects. So if you're enjoying the content of this podcast, but you're looking for a more structured and logical progression, looking at the science and application of these subjects, check out the Elite Academy at elitehrv.com academy. Welcome to the Elite HRV Podcast, where experts share their experience using heart rate variability and other biomarkers to optimize health and human performance. Welcome back to the Elite HRV Podcast. This is your host, Jason Moore. And today I'm excited to welcome Boomer Anderson to the show. Boomer, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's fun to be on this side of the microphone. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. And you know, um, I had the uh, good fortune to join you on your show and we had a great time, had good rapport. And as we've interacted over the years, um, now it's been a while, um, we realized that we have roots in the same town, Asheville, North Carolina, and we're able to meet up in person here, even though you live on the other side of the ocean now. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty neat to connect that way and realize also we've worked out at the same gyms before and things mm-hmm. like that. So, you know, bumping to you in the in Asheville, North Carolina, and some of the CrossFit gyms there has been quite the pleasure. Actually, you get to see me at my sweatiest. Perfect. That's yeah. You know, uh, that's when you see who people really are, is when they're, <laughs> when they're drenched in sweat. <laughs> um, so to give folks a little background, um, Boomer is a really interesting guy, for one, but um, his his work is very relevant to a lot of the things that we talk about on this show and a lot of the things that we're interested in. And, um, you know, a little quick background about Boomer is that Boomer has a background in entrepreneurship and investing. Uh, he was a former investment banker. And uh, at some point, he kind of discovered, and I'll let you correct me if I'm wrong, Boomer, but that um, you had this high performance kind of cognitive uh, side of your life. And then you were also really interested in increasing your physical performance and, and performance in other areas of your life but you struggled a lot. And in, in fact, we're even di- uh, diagnosed with heart disease at a pretty young age. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's crazy how life uh, brings about interesting turns at times. You know, as you mentioned, I, I've been obsessed with this idea of performance for a very long time, you know, going as far back as even high school, right? Physical, mental performance. I always sought to take it to that next level. And, if you graduated with a degree in business in 2007 and early 2008, you went into finance uh, if you could. And so I was fortunate enough to get a job on Wall Street, which started on September 11th, 2000, or sorry, September 15th, 2000, uh, 2008. And that was when Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy and AIG got nationalized. So heck of a day to start a finance career. But they said the world of finance changed forever. I certainly didn't feel it. You know, when it comes to performing, I was working 18-hour days, seven days a week, coming in on the weekend, sometimes leaving the office in the morning to only come back to my apartment, change my clothes, and go back into the office. And I did that so well that they sent me to Singapore a couple of years later. And... That When I moved to Singapore is when I really got into the physical and mental performance aspect of it, originally through Quantified Self. This was back when you know, guys like Gary Wolf and Kevin Kelly were just talking about this and before it became biohacking. And so I started looking at self-quantification and sort of the realm of how to feel better, but also how to perform better. And for me, how to perform better at that point in time was defined as how to work more, how to just complete more work. Because at a very young age, I got promoted to running a financing desk at a bulge bracket investment bank where I oversaw 14 different countries. And if you have 14 different countries to oversee and only a handful of people on your team, you have to do quite a bit of work. And so I got into the idea of performance through the idea of doing more work. 
but eventually got tired of investment banking when I was 30 and left my job. And on the way out, I got one of these physicals. And Jason, I'm sure you've had one of these physicals, right? You go into the doctor's office and you're like, hey, I just want everything tested. Mm-hmm. <laughs> everything possible. And the doctor and you know, it's Stephen Tucker in Singapore, and he's still a good friend of mine. He looked at me and he's like, do you want to get a calcium score? It'll cost you a few extra bucks. Uh, and I'm sure you don't have any calcium in your heart. And you can see where the story's going, right? Like two weeks later, I get the test back. The doctor didn't look at the results before he even presented them to me because he didn't think anything of it. And it turned out I had calcium in my heart and 30 years old had heart disease. And heart disease is the leading preventable cause of death in both the United States and the European Union, although I think cancer is starting to overtake it. And then it became a question of rather than how to do more work, how not to die. And I'd had this original idea in entrepreneurship, which I'd parked to just pursue how to answer this question of how not to die and ended up talking to a lot of experts around the world, eventually clicked record on those questions or those interviews. And that's kind of how the, the decoding superhuman podcast, which you've been on a couple of times got started. So it was pretty crazy. Yeah, that's a it's a quite a an evolution of priorities there, I would say. And mm-hmm. you know, I think one of the things that fascinated me about when I learned more about some of your backstory, which by the way, I didn't know all of the details of that. So it's uh, <laughs> it's exciting, you know, like you said as a host of a podcast, you get to learn a lot as well. Um, mm-hmm. but you you not only networked with a lot of really interesting high profile and kind of leading edge people in different categories. But you also thought about it in the sense, not only from um, how not to die, but you connected both of your worlds of performance and Mm -hmm. health and, and also connected dots between genetics and epigenetics and connected dots between, you know, kind of the cards you're dealt versus the actions you take with those cards And, uh, so I kind of want to dig into some of these things because, uh, like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, this will be really an interesting short story that a lot of people listening can relate to, maybe not exactly the same scenarios or maybe not even quite so extreme in certain cases, but some of the tools and tactics and pieces that you've put together can be useful for a lot of people in their journeys. Um, and, you know, I think one of the, the big, uh, overarching quotes that I like from your website, which is, which I got off of decoding superhuman.com is, um, exponential improvement happens in sustainable long-term habit changes. And that's a powerful message because a lot of times people think of, um, making big change as being sort of an event, like a one time, or even just like a, a slightly protracted, but, uh, end-to-end event, whereas you're saying that the the biggest improvements happen with sustainable long-term habit changes. So why why that mm-hmm. quote? Why is that such a big uh, piece of your message there? Sure, I, I think let, let's take a step back to kind of like ten thousand feet. Let's say you are a person who is geared towards performing at a different level than you're you are now. And you have a lifestyle that may not support your your goals. If you have a goal of let's say two or ten Xing your performance just because ten Xing seems to be very trendy right now. Thank you, Grant Cardo. <laughs> um, it's unlikely that you can change all of your behaviors overnight. And then Jason, I I know you've done quite a lot of work on yourself as well, but if I were to ask you to change everything that you did, every interaction that you have, all of your lifestyle overnight, what are the chances of you succeeding? I could probably succeed for about 10 minutes. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, I think that the, it might not to throw like a wrench into the conversation right in, right off the bat, but I think in my experience, people think I could do that. 
and they try it and mm-hmm. they succeed for about 10 minutes and then they just revert back to everything that they're used to doing. Exactly. And so a lot of people will think that they can do this. This is exactly, you know, Vivek was, we were talking with Vivek earlier and Vivek was saying, this is exactly why New Year's resolutions fail. But it's, the question is, is how do you take a goal that may be seemingly far off and break it down into its next logical step? And that's really what the, the objective is, is let's say I have an objective of increasing my, my focus. I have an objective of building muscle and I want to put on 10 pounds of muscle. Well, you can't put on 10 pounds of muscle overnight unless you maybe have some myostatin knockouts. And even then that's just going to be very, very hard, if not impossible. And so what we want to break it down to is what is the next easiest step for you to do in order to put on that muscle? Well, let's say you don't go to the gym right now and you want to start going to the gym more frequently. You want to start building this habit. Well, rather than saying, I'm going to go to the gym every day, why don't you wake up and do 10 push-ups? And so the idea here is, is how do we build you in one or 2% increments that over time will lead to exponential change? And usually this happens when somebody is... In the process of really saying agreeing to whatever habit change they're going to make, and they say, "Oh, that's so easy. Mm-hmm. I can do that." That's usually the point that we're looking for. Very nice. Yeah, I know that um, there was. Uh, this is a piece that me as a as a health and fitness coach in the past um, became very fascinating. I would read books on psychology and um, how to create change. And that was also part of my job. And when I used to work in corporate was I was implementing software, um, making big changes in the way people did things day to day. And it's just like you said, if you, I mean, there's certain changes where kind of ripping the bandaid can really be beneficial. Um, Mm -hmm. But those are often extreme cases. And, um, most change though happens with small incremental steps, right? Um, things that are easy to digest. Mm -hmm. And I really like that example of, instead of saying, I'm going to go to the gym every single day, which is a pretty big ask, may sound like a small ask in the short term, but, uh, when life kind of piles up and you have to go somewhere and your gym's maybe not, uh, very close, uh, for some people, that's uh, going to become a bigger and bigger ask as life kind of resumes and your motivation levels go back to base levels. Um, yeah, because what happens when you say, I'm going to go to the gym every day, and then the first day you don't make it. It's like people who go, we're in the middle of October right now, all this is recording, and it's October, mm-hmm. right? It's like the people who don't drink for the entire month of October, if they at any point drink during the month, they'll likely just go back to resuming their own ways. And so what we want is to lower the barrier to entry and make it just easily achievable to somebody so that, you know, there's, it's almost, it's almost too hard to not achieve that Mm -hmm. goal. And when we're talking about this uh, exponential improvement, And at the beginning, we kind of frame this as a journey of health and a journey of performance, uh, not dying on one hand and performing extremely (laughs) well on the other hand in business. Um, And also uh, many people on this show and and uh, others that follow us are trying to perform well in sports, for example. And um, you take a, a very personalized approach to performance and maybe you could describe to me what that means. And that's something of course, that I have a, my own thought in my head about what that might mean. But um, what does personalized performance mean to you? Sure. Perhaps it's just best to look at our process really, because when we look at personalized performance, everybody has their own individual goal. And 
your goals may be different from mine. Uh, my mother's goals, for instance, may be very different from mine in terms of what she wants to do. She may not want to complete a marathon, for instance. But the process that we go through involves quite a lot of focus on those goals. And we only select people who to work with who have a clear view of what those goals are. And so we lay everything out in terms of objective strategies and tactics. And the objectives are really, what are we trying to achieve here? If I'm working with somebody, I want to have a clear vision as to what that person is trying to achieve. And that could be a life's vision, but also physically and mentally, what are they trying to achieve in terms of performance? Uh, then we lay out a strategy for everybody and I'll, I can spend days talking about strategy, but universally we apply a complex systems approach to that perform upgrading that performance. And then the tactics are the micro habits and the things that you are doing on a day-to-day -day basis that lead to the achievement of those objectives. Does that make sense? I like that. Objectives, strategies, and tactics. And I think that's something that sounds like a framework that people could really apply to almost anything that they try to tackle in life is what are you, what's the key thing you're trying to achieve here? Uh, what's your general strategy for achieving it? And then what are the tactics that you can implement to execute that strategy? Right? Uh, absolutely. And I think in the business world, one thing that's very popular right now is objectives and key results. And that framework is very similar to this one. I think this one, I may have borrowed it from um, the military world, but it's, it's one that has served us very well in terms of being able to institute habit change with our clients. And then, there, you know, so there's many different ways that you can approach a lot of different things. And, you know, I also want to just as a quick sidebar, say that not everything in life has to follow this template. You don't mm -hmm. have to necessarily have an objective for everything. For example, if you just enjoy, I think one time I heard Tim Ferriss say, I don't speed read poetry. Um, <laughs> and so basically he, uh, you know, uh, has made a little bit of a splash in like productivity hacks, like speed reading. But um, his message was, you know, you can do things just to enjoy them. You don't have to speed read everything. Um, and I do think that's a good compliment, right? Like you have your objectives, but also how do you get a break? How do you recover? I mean, you, you know better than anyone, Jason, about recovery and HRV. Like how do you recover? And some of those things like not speed reading poetry are just simple ways to give your body a chance to, in your, in your mind, a chance to recover. Yeah. And, you know, interesting as it sounds for, uh, for folks that are kind of high performing by nature in the sense that they may have, uh, been able to relate to your story of wanting to just increase work output at some point in their life. Um, an objective that I've found useful now that I find myself kind of tempted by that goal as well is, to have a very kind of balanced and sustainable lifestyle, right? So I work mm -hmm. really hard. I work a lot, um, but I try to be really aware of not overdoing it and creating a sustainable practice. And, you know, I have strategies and tactics for that, which I've shared on other episodes and, you know, come up here and there in conversation. But, um, it's not to say that like when I go hiking that I necessarily have an objective of like inhaling a certain amount of oxygen or something like that. It's more like that fits in as a strategy and tactic or as a tactic rather that fits into my strategy of having a more balanced uh, approach to life. Absolutely. And, you know, part of your, part of the things that you use in your toolkit that is really something we haven't talked a ton about on this show, but people might be really interested in learning about more about is genetics and epigenetics. And uh, you also mentioned on your website as part of your story that you, at some point you kind of felt like you were uh, doing things that were designed for someone else's body. And mm -hmm. uh, so I kind of want to break down that 
quote and that line of thinking. And feel free to uh, you know relate it back to any other points that we're making here. But uh, what do you see as the role of genetics and epigenetics in the personalized performance arena? Sure. So let's let's go back to me a number of years ago. And this is very common in the world of nutrition and exercise. You get a magazine in the mail, Men's Health, you read the Huffington Post. It seems like the diet du jour is quite literally the diet du jour. It changes every day. I don't know about you, Jason, but I remember a couple of years ago, you know, Atkins was the thing to do. And then all of a sudden, Atkins evolved into paleo. And then you still have this undercurrent of vegetarian or veganism. And you have this keto culture. And all of these are fighting for the universal, uh, this is the best diet for you trophy. Mm-hmm. And the fact is, is that we're all individual. And I am, or I was, very susceptible to these different changes. And I've tried all of these diets. I've tried paleo, bulletproof, uh, ketogenic. I was a vegetarian for a day. Uh, That didn't work out so well for me. (laughs) But (laughs) if you look at what I mean by, you know, I was living trying things that were probably right for somebody else's body, none of these were addressing me as the individual. and my individual needs because we both we all have unique ancestral heritages we all have unique parents and as a result there's probably a unique need in terms of both diet and as well as exercise and so many other different factors right and one of the ways that we identify this particularly with our clients and this goes kind of into that strategy category that when you're mapping a complex system it's very useful to know what the blueprint of that system is. Think about it. Jason, have you ever tried to build a house? Not with my own hands. <laughs> but you've probably seen a blueprint to a house, mm-hmm. right? It was interesting because I was giving this presentation once in Amsterdam, and I, I was presenting the difference between genetics and epigenetics to people. And it just so happened that there was a carpenter in the crowd. And the difference between a blueprinted house versus a finished house. And I asked him, you know, how many times does the actual house when it's finished come out exactly like the blueprint? And he said to me, basically never. And that's because of the environment that it's built in. And so that environment could include soil changes. It can include weather changes. It can include access to different materials. And so what we're looking at here in terms of the blueprint versus the actual building is the same difference that we're really looking at between genetics and epigenetics. And so when we're mapping somebody's system, what we want to actually have is the blueprint for that system, which is the genetics. It tells us where you actually should be. It tells me, you know, here's where Jason Moore should be in terms of diet, exercise, nutrition, hormones, etc. And I just said diet and nutrition, so forgive me there. But uh, you can then, through simple interpretation of looking at where you are now, that's lifestyle interpretation, what your phenotypical expression is, is so, you know, how do you look? You can identify opportunities for improvement based on that because the epigenetics is just simply the shift in your gene expression. Uh, which has resulted in how you are today. Mm -hmm. And so if I know where you are today versus where you should be, we can identify opportunities. And that's really the basis of mapping the system. Of course, we layer on things like lab testing, uh, three-day HRV testing, and hormone testing, but that's just the basis. And when you get that information, that blueprint, we can really start to identify things like, okay, saturated fat. Is that butter coffee really serving you? Is that, uh, is that, are, you know, are you a person that can process sweet potatoes well? In which case, do we need to find, if you can't, do we need to find you an alternative source of vitamin A? And if you don't like beef liver, maybe that becomes a capsule of some sort. So really what genetics allows us to do is map that system. And then the epigenetic side is 
well, first, where are you, but also identifying opportunities to enhance your lifestyle all within the lens of your goals. So if your goals are to elevate physical and mental performance, we have to keep that in mind as we evaluate your whole system. Hmm. Yeah. And, you know, as you were describing all of this, kind of something that comes to mind is um, genetics is, to me, one of those kind of uh, topics that I feel is you got to like approach it carefully, essentially, not, not Mm -hmm. only because, you know, people don't have control over their actual genes, um, aside from the epigenetic side, but, uh, so, you know, you obviously, you don't want to, um, offend or, uh, put people into a category that, uh, affects their day-to-day ability to thrive. But, um, do you find, and you know, feel free to say there's not enough data, or you don't know, don't know something like this, because it's sort of a loaded question. Um, do you find that in general, people's goals are almost always within their genetic capacity? Oh, I, I mean, let's look at if you look at the people I serve, which is predominantly a working professional who is uh, generally a CEO, an executive, an entrepreneur, or an aspiring executive. And in which case, these people are looking to achieve and sustain high performance states over time. For the most part, the answer is yes. And if we're looking for for focus, we're looking for uh, capacity, stress resilience, that stuff is trainable uh, over time. Uh The um, if you had a person who maybe had, uh, I, I'm just trying to think of the counter answer here. I'm sure there are examples out there where uh, a person just simply doesn't have the genetic capacity to to do something um, within their without their or outside of their reach, which would be to me something where a person is hindered by maybe an injury, a disease, etc. Uh, but that's, or, that's, or like me trying to participate in high jump. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess <laughs> this yeah. is not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, and, and again, I can only speak to the people I serve, which are much more on the mental side of things. Uh, but exactly, uh, you know, genetic capacity to high jump or you know play basketball. I'm not exactly, you know, Jason. We met in person, right? And I'm not exactly going to be your your number one candidate for the NBA slam dunk competition anytime soon. So I, I think there are cases for sure that from a physical standpoint, it would be pretty hard to reach. And uh, the reason why I bring that up is because, um, you know, I just look at the spectrum of people and their goals out there and you have kind of this, um, this middle range. It's, it's like a bell curve essentially. Right. So you have like, a very small number of people at each end who are dealing with either extreme catastrophic health situations on one side of the equation or on the very other side of the bell curve, extreme levels of performance, um, even mental performance or um, especially physical performance because that's easy to kind of uh, use our normal human senses to see genetic limits Mm -hmm. for. Um, But you know, at those extreme end ranges, you have some interesting uh, thing, interesting things to consider, like that uh, genetics probably plays a much bigger role as far as like the ceiling uh, or the floor of what you can achieve or what you can expect. And then also motivation tends to be higher at those extreme ends because the stakes are higher. And uh, so people are extremely motivated to try new things, um, to try alternative approaches to achieving things. Um, and, you know, in some ways they approach things similarly in the sense that they're also willing to take a more holistic approach to getting a marginal uh, improvement, right? And then in the middle, you kind of have the rest of us, so to speak, that are maybe not undergoing as extreme of uh, situation or as extreme of goals, but we still want to, uh, we don't want to end up at the lower extreme if we can avoid it. 
And we kind of want to keep pushing ourselves towards that higher extreme. There's especially kind of a a trend in Western culture that everyone feels like they need to be an elite athlete or an elite performer. Um, So we're all kind of like pushing ourselves that way. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's kind of what, you know, in the back of my mind, uh, as I think about our business and how we can serve people and and help them achieve their goals um, is kind of meeting them where they're at and helping them get to the place they want to be. Um, but that's kind of what I was curious about asking from your perspective, uh, if genetics was limiting mm, a lot of people or if it's also, or if it's more of a tool that we can use to, to see how, how do we approach our journey towards better performance or away from uh, disease state, for example? The latter, definitely. But just to add to one point that you made, and uh, thank you for bringing up the physical performance side of things. If we look at genetic capacities uh, for exercise, for instance, and this is where HRV definitely plays a significant role. Um, <clears throat> the question, or along the lines of what diet to try, the question of how often you should work out comes on Uh, it comes about quite often, right? And some of that can be defined in our genetics. We look at things like genetic predispositions to inflammation and genetic predispositions to, you know, I guess other other markers which could be associated with um, poor recovery. And you're looking at something like a TNF-alpha or C-reactive protein. And we can measure these all through blood, but it also gives us a hint through the genetics as to how frequent should somebody be working out. Are they a three times a week person? Are they a six times a week person? Or are you a person like Rich Froning that can work out, what does he work out, like five times a day? Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, at least probably. Yeah, so that there is some genetic uh, predispositions in there for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. And, you know, uh, even on the mental performance side of the equation, if you look at who the cognitive athletes are in our world, um, I interviewed a guy named Steve Ward, who works with cognitive athletes specifically in the day trading and financial industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Boomer, you also work with cognitive athletes that are trying to perform well in business, finance, and um, a number of other industries. Um, you know, uh, what are some of the limitations that people think that they have? Um, and are some of those real or are a lot of them just kind of something that can be overcome? You know, what maybe break down what some of the mental performance side of the equation looks like? Mm-hmm. Great question. So we're looking at... I like asking loaded questions. You do ask loaded questions. It's a good one. So when we're looking at the the mental performance equation, when you get to a certain level, you know, everybody's intelligent, right? Everybody's very fast thinker, etc. Some people seem to be able to do more. Um, Some people seem to be able to handle more. And so there's this question or limitation that people perceive around time, of course. And time is a very valuable asset, but we all have 24 hours a day. We all have 168 hours a week. And so for a lot of people, it's just how they use their time. There's also this sense of overwhelm. And there's a term out there in psychology that I like a lot called bandwidth poverty. And you've heard of time poverty You've heard of monetary poverty, right, Jason? So hopefully mm-hmm. nobody's experiencing this, listening to this. But you know, monetary poverty is when you don't have any money. Bandwidth poverty is simply when you don't have the capacity. And that can manifest itself in staring at your computer and thinking you have so much to do that you don't actually get anything done. Um, and then that can also manifest itself in terms of waking up in the middle of the night and not being able to get back to sleep. And it's very common that somebody wakes up at 3 a.m. and all of a sudden they're awake and they think it's 6 or 7 a.m. or whenever they normally wake up and they look down and it's 3, their mind's racing, they can't get back to sleep. Oh my, I just got four hours of sleep. How am I going to function today? 
And so when we come to these situations, it's just, you know, keep in mind, everybody has the same 24 hours, the same 168 hours in the week. And so how do you deal with those particular situations? And, and it's developing those strategies around that, those tactics to really help you um, handle those situations to build resilience to and this again another aspect you'll hear me talk about hrv quite a lot because you know jason when i was interviewing you on my podcast i said hrv is probably my favorite biomarker and when we go through these objective strategies and tactics with people one other aspect we layer on on the tactic side of things is a measurement. And so with every tactic, we include a measurement because we want to know if it's succeeding or not. And HRV is oftentimes one of those measurements. So to go back to your question, I think one of the things that people struggle with most here is time and really senses of overwhelm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. You know, what, uh, I recently, a relative asked me, um, some, information about investing and uh, I will have to say that there are probably uh, no, not probably there are definitely people who know more about investing than me but I've done a little bit of of research into it and um, anyways long story short there is that I said one of the first things you should invest in is uh, good habits and good use of your time and mm -hmm. they weren't expecting that because they were thinking uh, that I should be telling them to do an index fund or a mutual fund or bonds or startups or venture at least capital. They didn't, at least they didn't ask you if you were going to invest in crypto, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so they were expecting kind of a financial-focused answer, but I kind of said, you know, and this wasn't a dig at them specifically, but in my opinion, um, making good use of your time and forming good habits is actually going to pay out better than um, a certain interest rate because the compounding effect over time of good habits is uh, it plays out exponentially through your whole life, including in how you invest your money. Um, and whereas compound interest on dollars only increases dollars. And exactly. I mean, knowledge compounds. And so you know, reading, any sort of way to acquire knowledge are definitely, uh, definitely good habits to build. Yeah. And then, so, uh, you know, as you talk about personalized performance, we've talked a briefly about genetics and epigenetics. Um, on the epigenetics side, I think you've mentioned to me before, there's the opportunity to create a feedback loop specifically. Mm -hmm. And that that can help with behavior change and, and a number of other things. So you, you also talked about here, you always measure when you start implementing different tactics. Uh, what is the, what, you know, describe to us kind of what that looks like. Uh, why is a feedback loop important? How does that play in to all this? Sure. As I mentioned before, the, the people that I serve tend to be these sort of cognitive ninjas, if you will. And they generally are in the finance or technology industries, and they value mental performance slightly over physical performance, but certainly physical performance does play a factor there. And when somebody comes to work with us, it's usually there's uh, three categories or opportunities uh, for that person to immediately improve. And you know, those three buckets are usually sleep, stress, and nutrition. And all of those elements play into that complex system that we were talking about earlier in terms of amplifying general performance. And so let's take, for example, sleep. And sleep is... It's getting a lot of headway or headlines these days, right? And there's lots of great uh, news and articles being published about this. I mean, you had Matthew Walker's book, you had a number of different books being published about sleep, which before it didn't really exist. And I don't know about you, Jason, but growing up, I, I listened to a lot of hip hop music, and there was this one artist called Nas who had this song, I think it was New York State of Mind. And it said, sleep is the cousin of death. And a part of my background story that we didn't get into is that I embodied that. 
And I slept between four and six hours a night for from the age of really 18 to 30. And so looking at that, but let's extrapolate that to the entire U.S. population. The average person in the United States right now sleeps less than seven hours a night. And so if you're sleeping less than seven hours a night, and we know that genetically something like 90%, 97% of the population needs seven hours or more a night to, to perform at their best, mm-hmm. how do we get people to buy in to the idea of sleeping more? And this is where feedback loops become very, very helpful. You can get a device uh, like an Aura Ring, a Garmin, choose your device and almost the data does matter in terms of quality, but the initial idea is to start getting measurements. And so, you know, for instance, I have an Aura Ring and one of the things that we can layer in here is, okay, here's a specific habit that we want you to do. Let's say going to bed 15 minutes earlier. And you have your aura ring in terms of measuring kind of overall sleep score, but also sleep stages and a whole bunch of other things. And by going to bed 15 minutes earlier and then using the, uh, the measurement of the aura ring, we can actually assess through objective data how much better you know, you're doing. Are, is your HRV higher? Is your sleep score higher? And this creates a feedback loop and it's self-reinforcing in a way. So a very common example among this population is the use of alcohol. Mm-hmm. And using you know, a couple of glasses of wine a night, how does that affect your sleep, and your sleep structure, your sleep architecture, et cetera? And we know that if you're going to have a couple of glasses of, of wine late in the evening, it may affect your deep sleep. And by just seeing that, a a person who has access to this data may then elect to really select a different behavior. Maybe they cut it down to one and find that that actually saves some of their deep sleep. Maybe they cut it down to zero and it improves their deep sleep and they feel better. And so the idea behind feedback loops is how do we support the behavior change over time. So with these recommendations, we want a measurement to see if the recommendation is working, but also we want that measurement to give you feedback in the form of, okay, I feel better, my sleep score is higher, so therefore I'm going to continue to do X, right? And that over time is how we take you 2% up over day by day, 2% up, and you make exponential change over time. Yeah, that's, that's huge. I, I appreciate that. Um, how you link kind of the measurement loop back to the behavior. And that kind of reminds me of, um, I believe it was something that I read from Nassim Talib, but I could be mis, uh, misattributing. Um, but he talked about the uh, medical scene and how there's not really strong, there are not strong feedback loops built in for many types of doctors. Um, but surgeons mm-hmm. are one type of doctors that have an in- inherent feedback loop built in. And obviously, if you mess up during surgery, there's usually an immediate feedback loop. And as a result, surgeons usually get better over time after they graduate from medical school at their craft. And uh, other types of doctors that don't have a, as an immediate feedback loop, there's not an inherent um, increase in their skill over time necessarily as far as it relates to outcomes of their patients. So uh, they're, the way that the feedback loop works for other types of practices that are more kind of long-term ramifications, um, the doctor has to be very kind of consciously seeking out new information to improve their craft. And that's a hard thing to do uh, versus having that immediate feedback loop. And so I don't know if that necessarily <laughs> helps uh, illustrate this point, but um, I think there are a lot of things in life that you don't inherently get a natural feedback loop on. Like, for example, um, if you slowly uh, decrease your sleep duration over time, then since humans are very adaptable, 
you may not really notice the changes in your energy or motivation or focus or cognitive function or willpower or other uh, things that correlate with low, uh, frequent low sleep quantity. Um, However, if you make a conscious choice to measure and get some objective feedback on that, then you can maybe more quickly and readily notice when changes in sleep impact your physiology and then relate that to changes in your behavior or your output or whatever your kind of life goal is, so to speak. Absolutely. I mean, the idea is, is how do you construct the shortest feedback loop possible? In some cases with sleep, it may be the next morning, but now we have continuous glucose measurements. We can do that almost immediately with food. And these feedback loops, again, support the behavior change. You eat a Twinkie. I hope nobody listening to this actually eats Twinkies. <laughs> but you know, you eat a Twinkie. What does that do to your blood glucose? How do you feel? And you associate the higher level of blood glucose with the food and then how you feel. And just connecting those dots allows you to avoid eating the Twinkie, hopefully, ever again. <laughs> right, right. And I do love the Taleb reference, by the way. I think that's the the fragilistas um, from Anti Fragile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of dots to connect between industries, right? And um, mm-hmm. and it comes back to something you said earlier about uh, a complex systems approach. Um, and mm-hmm. a systems approach is that has to be adaptable to each individual. Um, and that's just mm-hmm. kind of playing off of how biology works to begin with, right? Um, uh, basically, yeah, I won't go too far down that rabbit hole, but biology, um, is a very complex system and there are so many variables that at play that it's really hard to make universal statements that apply across all of biology. So... Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a whole nother podcast. (laughs) (laughs) It's easier to make universal statements that apply across physics and even chemistry, which are layers below biology. But um, Mm -hmm. the the increasingly, the more you increase the complexity, the harder it is to make blanket statements. Mm -hmm. So um, there's, there's a lot of things that I think we can leave people to chew on here and uh before we wrap up is there anything that you want to leave people with and i also will provide um some information about where they can find you but i kind of want to ask that open-ended question sure Sure. Uh, just in general one of the things that i found to be useful most useful in my own journey and keep in mind i went from answering the question that i mentioned earlier to realizing that there's a lot of overlap between the question of how not to die and how to perform better. And that journey has been a spectacular one for me in terms of learning, uh, but also in terms of personal growth. And one of the things that has been most helpful for me is this process of objective strategies and tactics. But the the point that we've made on feedback loops and measurement is something that I would like to encourage people to check more out, uh, check out more. Sorry, I shouldn't end a sentence in a preposition. My English teacher will be (laughs) mad at me. But a a quote that gets wrongly attributed to Peter Drucker is what gets measured gets managed. And I think Lord Byron actually came up with it originally. But the idea of just, if you have a goal, establishing just what you're going to measure to achieve that goal and really just getting those bookends right, you're already getting a lot of the way there. If you can then develop the strategy as well as the tactics, that that's the formula for success. That's huge. And, you know, uh, I'll end on, on a quick bullet point uh, question where you can leave people something to think about here. Um, and when we talk about performance, um, and we've, we've kind of touched on stress a little bit, but stress is a topic that we've talked a lot about on this podcast. Are there a couple bullet points, 
sources of stress that could potentially hamper people's performance in general. And those bullet points will be something that people can think about and that perhaps we can dig into on a future conversation. Um, There's so many. So let's... Let's let's break down a few. Uh, so hidden sources of stress. Do I have that question mm-hmm. right? Given the crowd that I generally work with, and I'm suspecting that Jason, you work with as well in terms of ambitious people. Screen time. Looking at screen time and looking to either actively reduce your screen time or reduce your exposure to that lovely diva of the light world, blue light, late at night is something that I found to be immensely helpful with sleep architecture. And then also the knock-on effect there is benefiting HRV. Um, Breathing structure or breath structure, you've covered this on the show extensively, but making sure you're breathing into your diaphragm, uh, that will definitely help. And then try and get some sunlight, try and go outside, spend some time in nature, the, the Japanese, I forget the actual term that they use for nature bathing, but that is getting a lot of attention lately uh, for good reason because going out and spending some time in nature is a very quick way to recalibrate and bring the stress levels down just a little bit. Awesome. Yeah, and I just I appreciate that. I know it was kind of like, a again, another loaded right at the end there. Um, but that gives some things for folks to think about. And also, um, when people want to learn more about what Boomer's up to, they can check him out at decodingsuperhuman.com. And Boomer, where else can people find information about your work? Sure. So decodingsuperhuman.com has links to the podcast. We have close to 120 episodes right now. And, you know, Jason, you've been a part of that for sure. And I'm very grateful for everything you've done with that podcast as well as been somewhat of a mentor to me. But also you can find, so decodingsuperhuman.com, I'm at decodingsuperhuman on all of the social medias. LinkedIn is probably the most active one. And then you can check out some of my uh, foundational work at homehope.org, which is an organization that I'm involved with that was founded by Dr. Ted Achacoso. So check out those links. And, you know, if you want to get in touch with me, there's pretty easy ways to get in touch with me there. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Boomer. Really appreciate your time. And I know, like you mentioned, time is a scarce resource. So I appreciate you sharing yours with us and some of this information. I think that uh, genetics and epigenetics and feedback loops, uh, objectives, strategies, tactics, all of these things are really important for helping people achieve what they want to achieve in life. And you really kind of lay it out in an easy to digest format. So really appreciate that. Well, I'm grateful to you, Jason, because you've helped me exponentially grow my knowledge of HRV. So thank you so much. Awesome. We'll wrap there. And uh, as always, we'll have links to what we've talked about over at EliteHRV.com slash podcast. And if you've enjoyed this episode, drop us a review over on Apple Podcasts. And otherwise, thanks again, Boomer. And that's a wrap. Thank you. The Elite Academy now offers in-depth online courses on multiple subjects. So if you're enjoying the content of this podcast, but you're looking for a more structured and logical progression, looking at the science and application of these subjects, check out the Elite Academy at EliteHRV.com academy.